Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, happy Earth Day. Tom Hartman here with you. We've got a really big shoe for you today. And Professor Richard Wolff will be with us. Why do conservatives object to there being a middle class? And I want to get into my rant from today's HartmanReport.com. Republican greed now dominates Americans' lives. And I'll tell you all about that. But first, Charles Sauer is on the line with us. He is the libertarian economist and president of the Market Institute. Marketinstitute.org is their website. He's also the author of a book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. His uh, Twitter handle is Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R, at Charles Sauer or at Market Institute. Charles, welcome back. I want to bring back the American middle class that we had when I was a kid. You know, my dad's American middle class. And that middle class was built in large part on a 90% top income tax bracket so that the very, this was back before Reagan, this was before we had a single billionaire in the United States. But what we did have was the fastest growth in middle class and, and even poor people. The income of the, of the bottom 40% was growing faster than the top 5%. I want to bring that back. I want to bring it back with a top 90% tax bracket. Obviously, most people it wouldn't even affect You'd have to make at least a few million bucks a year before you'd even be looking at the possibility of getting into that tax bracket. But it seems like a reasonable thing to me. What say you? I'm disappointed in you, Tom. That's what says me. I'm disappointed that you don't just propose a 100% tax rate. Look, if we're going to play with magic numbers, you may as well just put it up to 100% and call it a day. Look, the fact is, is we did have a 90% tax rate. But if you look at the tax revenue, and it wasn't magic. It's been generated. It, it didn't work. This, the same tax revenue has what has been generated from, what, 1940 up until now. It, it goes back and forth between about 20% and 15% of GDP is what we collect in tax revenues. All that we did is we've knocked down the tax rate is take out the exemptions so that rich people can't deduct their dinners out or their memberships to a country club. And so as we've taken those out, then money becomes more efficient. And so that's where we see that 
you know, now we have multiple TVs in each household. We have multiple color TVs. I bet you didn't have that when you grew up. But now our middle class looks different. Our middle class looks like a successful person. Charles, um, there was a time when, when we didn't have light bulbs. And number one, and number two, yeah, you know, tax revenues, tax collections have run 17 to 20 percent of GDP, you know, forever. But the simple fact of the matter is that when my dad was a kid, when my dad was young in the in the 1950s and 1960s, uh, not a kid, but you know, when I was a little kid, when he was in his 30s, one third of the federal budget was paid for with corporate taxes. It's now six percent. Wealthy people were paying much higher tax rates. You had the president of Chrysler. I remember Lee Iacocca famously taking $1 for a year as he was turning the company around. And I believe it was uh, William Sapphire pointed out, well, you know, he only normally takes a million dollars because if he takes any more than that, he would throw himself into the 90% tax bracket anyway. So this isn't that huge a sacrifice. What we've seen is that Reagan raised taxes on average working people 11 times. He cut taxes on the wealthy 18 times. We now pay, because of Reagan, We average working people now pay income taxes on Social Security money. They now pay income taxes on Social Security disability. They now pay income taxes on unemployment benefits. They now pay taxes on tip income, which used to be taxable, but there was no mechanism to actually uh, collect it. Reagan put that into place. Yes, we're, we're collecting 17% of GDP for taxes. But more of it is being paid by the middle class and less of it is being paid by the rich, which is why you've got, you know, over a thousand billionaires in the United States. That's just not true. If you look at the the tax rates, you're actually correct. But that the tax rates has never been who was paying taxes. That's not been who's paying taxes. And that's where I'm right when we look at the revenue by GDP, because that is what is important here and what we should focus on because the actual no, effective tax rate for somebody no, no, in the lower second, Charles. is lower. I, you know, today I'll give than you that revenue as a percentage of GDP is going to be is going to have an impact on you know whether government can function, whether it can pay its bills and things like that. Sure, that's an important number to look at. But what I'm talking about is the use of tax to alter behavior. Taxes do two things. Taxes, number one, pay for government. Taxes, number two, alter the behavior of the people who pay the taxes. And that's why we have tax laws that encourage behaviors that we want. For example, we give a tax break for research and development because we want companies to be innovative. Well, you know, and, yep. and, and so what we have done now is we have radically cut back on the taxes on very wealthy people, which used to discourage them from hiding all their money in money bins and offshore places and and encourage them to pay their workers better and put more money back into their companies. And instead, what are you talking about? That's the exact opposite. That's the, the elasticity of this meant that they were hiding the money. They had the company cars. They had the country club memberships. They had free food. They had anything they wanted because they were still going that's, to get paid the same amount. That's just nibbling around the edges, Charles. That's just nibbling around the edges. That's real money. Are, are, look, are you, you telling me that... This, if you look at the I, elasticity of demand for this labor group... It's not going to change. When you increase the taxes, they still demand the same amount of money. They're going to get it one way or the other, whether it's in deferred payments by having stock in the companies, whether it's by fringe benefits, they're going to get their money one way or the other. 
then why weren't they getting their money one way or another from the 30s until the 80s? Why was it that during that period of time, the middle class was growing in both income and wealth and, and poor people were growing in both income and wealth faster than were the top 5%? That was because purely your high a function tax of tax was incentivizing poor spending. It, look, as soon as we started getting rid of that, that's where our technological, that's where our innovation boom started happening. Because we, the tax benefits, the tax deductions that we left in were for research and development, but everything else went away, which meant that companies were incentivized to spend money correctly, efficiently, and actually grow their companies and grow their business. And that's what grows the report. You're talking about corporate tax rates. I'm talking about personal tax rates. Look, these end up all going into the same group. We've talked about corporate tax rates. The money the ends up in the same rate, place, but the but but corporations and individuals are incentivized in different ways by different levels of taxation and in different categories. I like that you admit that because as you increase the corporate tax rate, you incentivize companies to move away. That's what ends up hurting labor. Not if, if you, you make it illegal. Middle class then you increase the corporate tax rate because it that wasn't is it wasn't until Reagan brought back the GATT, you know, and, 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 and negotiated NAFTA that corporations could move their companies overseas. We were operating under the Buy America Act, FDR's Buy America Act, until Reagan came along and started issuing waivers. Look, unlike, you can stop unlike that behavior. the left that likes to look back on the left, uh, look back on history and dream about it, I realized that there was a lot of domestic abuse. There was a lot of racism. There was a lot of bad things happening in the economy back in the 50s. But they 60s, weren't a function of tax policy. That aren't happening today. We're at a better place. We need to continue moving towards that better place, and that's less taxes and the better labor. Okay, I, I leave you with the final word. Charles Sauer, libertarian economist, president of the Market Institute, marketinstitute.org. His new book, Profit Motive, What Drives the Things We Do. Charles Sauer, S-A-U-E-R on Twitter. Charles, thanks for dropping by. It's always good talking with you. Thanks, thanks for having me. This is the Tom My Hartman pleasure. Program. Charles is one of the good guys uh, that I disagree with, but, you know, a decent and reasonable man. So, Beth in Jonesboro, Arkansas. Hey, Beth, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom, thank you for taking my call. I am actually a CPA, but I haven't practiced in a number of years. My, what I'm calling is to respond to your libertarian guest and his interesting take on uh, how taxes work. Um, currently, I do not work as a CPA. I have some rental property. I have a very low income. My adjusted gross income for last year was like $25,000. My boyfriend, who is a long-term boyfriend, owns a very successful company, and he, he, he produced about $30 million in profit in his business. His sales were much higher in profit. I personally paid more taxes for 2020 than he did for 2020. He has been my boyfriend for over seven years. He has never paid a dime of taxes to the federal government. He does pay some to Arkansas because depreciation laws are different. And he's doing all this legally. Guest is wrong. Yes, yes, it's all legal. It's all legal. Yeah, yeah. and, you're, and this is my point. Is wrong. Yeah, it used to be that the taxes that average working people paid. I mean, you know, yeah, we all paid taxes, but it was a relatively small part of our income, and it was a large chunk of the federal budget because there were so many people who were working and paying taxes. But really, the people who were getting bit by the tax man, as it were, were the people who were trying to extract two, three, four, five million bucks a year, you know, today's dollars 
you know, out of their income. And, and your boyfriend making $30 million last year and paying nothing in taxes, and you making $25,000 last year and paying more in taxes than him. I'm guessing that's a story that gets repeated. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett famously said that about 15 years ago. You know, he pointed out that his secretary pays more in taxes than he does. And he's, he was at that time, he was the second richest man in America. So right, spot right. on. It, it, it's just a big mess. And thank you for bringing this up and letting that man say that so we could say he was wrong. So, Okay. Well, I think it's a discussion we need to have. And there's this huge debate right now. I mean, you know, Trump lowered the uh, the corporate tax rate down to 21%. It, it's been 35% for decades. Uh, you know, it used to be 50% back before Reagan. And Reagan dropped it down to 35%. It's been 35% up until the last couple of years. And, and then Trump dropped it down to 21%. Joe Manchin is saying he'll take it up to 25%. But Joe Biden is saying, let's take it up to 28%. I'm saying, let's take it back to 50% and let's take the individual tax rate back to 90%. Now, that doesn't mean that every business pays 50% taxes or that every individual pays 90% taxes. On your $25,000 a year, you're not going to see any increase in your taxes. These are, you know, we have tax brackets. You know, you know that as a CPA. And, you know, it's only going to affect wealthy people. But, hey, it's time for them to start paying for all the infrastructure that they're using. That's it's right. just crazy. Beth, it I got to move along. But thank, thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, how's the uh, Moose happy Herder Democrats day. going? <laughs> well, happy Earth Day, Tom. Uh, thank I'm you, Beth. I'm a newly minted member of the Green Party now. You know, after 50 years as a Republican, I joined the Green Party. And I want to ask a request of you. Could you have a guest on your program, the leaders of the Green Party of Germany? They may put up one of their women leaders to be prime minister. Could you, uh, Baerbach, I think is her name, could you, and and Habeck is the man, could you get either one of them to be guests and advise us Green Party what to do in the United States and how the Green Party is going to cooperate in the United States when they win the premiership in September election? Could you do that, Tom? I would have no objection to that, Kino. I don't know how, how good their English is. That's uh, usually the limiting variable when it comes to getting foreign, or, you know, foreign guests on. And sometimes foreign politicians just kind of view themselves as a little bit above doing an American talk show, you know, this kind of type well, of stuff. Yeah, but, but we'll see. You know, with an interpreter, we'll maybe get an interpreter and uh, tell them that one of the Green Party, a new Green Party member wants them to talk to the United States and us to build cooperation, Green Party of the United States and Germany. Well, here's the problem, Kino. Germany has a parliamentary system. So the Green Party is one of about, I think, eight or nine major political parties in Germany right now. And they have considerable influence. I mean, you know, when Petra Kelly started the Green Party back in, I think it was 1956 or 65, it became a major force fairly quickly because it could participate in German politics. Here in the United States, if you're a member of the Green Party and you're getting people to vote for the Green Party, Kino, you're helping the Republicans that you just left. Why not take the values of the Green Party and inculcate those values into the Democratic Party and work to get Democrats elected? Okay, well, I would serious question. You know, to, I, I would like to orient the Republican Party to pull out some members that are interested in the environment, maybe to come and join the Green Party. Yeah, well, okay, you know, I get that, you know, because 
Republicans want somebody to vote for some for anything other than the Democratic Party. But we have first past the post winner take all elections in the United States. We're one of only seven countries in the world that does that. And as a consequence of that, we have a two party system. We're stuck with it. So anytime anybody votes for the Green Party, you know, they're taking votes away from Democrats. If they vote for the Libertarian Party, they're taking votes away from Republicans. That's why my preference is I think the Democratic Party is nowhere near as progressive as I want them to be or as environmental as I want them to be. And so I'm working inside the Democratic Party to try to make that happen. Yeah, because I, I, I know if I went to the Green Party, all I'm doing is siphoning votes away from the Democrats, which means the Republicans are going to pick up those votes, essentially. Well, Tom, can I give you an alert, too? In, in the Wall Street Journal today, Carl Rove has an article called uh, The Last the Left Brightens GOP Midterm Chances. He's offering a bouquet of a police state to uh, the Republicans for the midterm elections. Uh, be aware of, real liberals should be aware of that article, that it's an invitation for the Republicans to endorse a police state in the midterm elections. Oh, man. I'll have to go looking for it, Kino. Uh, it doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, Carl, Carl Rove has always been about a police state. Just ask Don Siegelman sometime. Kino, great to hear from you. Thank you very much for the call. I wish you well. You know, keep tilting at those windmills. You know, every now and then you'll get one. You know, Don Quixote wasn't altogether wrong. And I, you know, and I, and I don't mean to minimize, you know, your Moose Republicans or now your Green Party. I realize you're trying to do the best thing for this country, and I really honor that, Kino. Thank you. Tom Harbin here with you, and I just want to share my rant for the day with you. I posted this over at HarbinReport.com this morning, as I as I do every morning. Louise and I start brainstorming these in our afternoon walk every day, and uh, then I come home, and, and typically between four and five or so, I put these things together, and then we fine-tune them through the evening, and then first thing in the morning, and she finds a picture, and boom, we, you know, we put it up at Harbin Report. But it's also my main thought for the day. I want to just share this with you just straight out and let you tell me what you think I've missed here or if you think I'm getting anything wrong. And this is kind of a natural follow-on to what Charles Sauer was going off on. And that is the Republican agree. Why can't Americans have nice things, right? You ask that question. Why is it that Canada has a national health care system? France has a national health care system. Germany has a, you know, why can't Americans have nice things? Uh, you know, in Denmark, they pay you $400 a month to go to college. Why can't Americans have nice things? In, in, most, in most developed countries, you don't see homeless people all over the place. In fact, you don't see homeless people at, largely at all in many places. Why can't America have nice things? Why is it that we don't even have you know, decent sick pay? Why is it that in other countries you work 30 or 40 years at the most and you're going to retire with a good pension? You've got a union helping support you for the rest of your life. Why is it America can't have good things? Well, it boils down to one thing, Republican greed. And it's not about ideology. Republicans, you know, they used to pretend that it was. They used to say the Social Security and Medicare were going to turn America into a communist country, and that's why they were opposed to them. Turns out that they're actually opposed to them because they're paid for with tax dollars, and they don't want their taxes to go up. It's not about racism, although it often appears that way. Racism is just one of their tools. The reasons Republicans work so hard to keep black and brown people down is because they, they subscribe to this weird economic theory that if they can keep the underclass doing most of the work, and this is just the logical extension of slavery, by the way, if they can keep the underclass doing most of the hard work, then they can keep most of the money. 
And by the way, if their use of racist language and Confederate iconography brings in a few more low IQ white voters, that's just icing on the cake. They can use those racist yahoos to get themselves reelected so that the giant corporations can stuff more money in their super PACs that they can use to retire with, you know, like John Boehner and those guys. It's not about charity. They say, uh, oh, you know, uh, housing and health care should be taken care of through charity. What they're really saying is they just don't want to pay their their fair share of taxes to maintain a decent and healthy society. It's not about Christianity, although they're constantly invoking Jesus to push for everything from giving women who have abortions the death penalty uh, to, the, to, to providing bigots with a legal right to discriminate against gay and trans people. Jesus never said one word about abortion, and he was outspoken in decrying bigotry. But, you know, these guys regularly ignore the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 25 and and, and they protect the multimillionaire evangelist tax-free status in exchange for that. The multimillionaire, ta- you know, televangelists and evangelists preach politics in the pulpit. It's not about saving American lives from the Pentagon or from the pandemic. Excuse me. Uh, Trump used the Defense Production Act to do one thing and one thing only. Put black and brown people back to work in, in uh, meatpacking plants. He doesn't give a rat's ass about Americans. As long as the factories are humming and the stock market's rising, a few hundred thousand dead Americans, that's just collateral damage. It's not about conservatism. I know they like to use that word, but it's not about slowly or cautiously improving America or anything else other than the balance in their own checking accounts. And they like to use the word conservative, but they've rendered it meaningless other than, in many cases, as code for racist. It's not about making the world a better place. They deny climate change. They deregulate industries that poison our air and water. They do everything they can to screw working people out of unions, good wages, decent benefits. They're totally down with pesticides that are killing our pollinators. And while they're poisoning our atmosphere with their carbon emissions, all just to make a buck. It's all about greed. It's not about having a better educated electorate or workforce or populace. They've spent decades trying to destroy what, what in the 1960s, we had the best public education system in the world. No more. Reagan got a hold of it. And now we've got $2 trillion worth of student debt, and uh, you know, which is sure profitable for Republican banksters. It's not about culture. You know, they do this good old boy NASCAR duck dynasty thing to bring in the rubes. But there's no way Donald, Donald Trump would ever invite any of those people to one of his golf courses or that Ted Cruz would want to take one on vacation to Cancun. It's not about gun violence. As long as their investments in the weapons manufacturers are profitable and, and the gun violence is limited to, to, to middle class and, and poor people, they don't give a rat's ass about gun safety. It's not about immigrants taking jobs from working class Americans. They stopped enforcing the laws against employers hiring people. And when the spotlight gets shined on them, they're more than happy to put brown people in jail. It's not put, about putting America first. Reagan and Bush brought us GATT and NAFTA, which have shifted over 5 million jobs overseas. At the end of the day, the single animating force in the Republican Party is greed. Doesn't matter how many Americans die, it's all about the greed. Prove me wrong. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. 
And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Teresa in Bellevue, Washington. Hey, Teresa, what's up? Hey, yeah, I was going to talk to you a little bit about the libertarianism. Um, oh, my gosh, that, that ideology is just so, so difficult because it's so illogical. But one thing I say when um, people start talking about how taxes, you know, their idea that taxes are kind of immoral and what's the word, confiscate, anyway, sometimes those are our choices. And so I think yeah. that's a way to argue with a lot of these people that, you know, I mean, look at the alternative to what you're suggesting. Yeah, so, that's anyway, a great yeah. suggestion, Teresa. There's another alternative, too, that and, and that sometimes will stop them in their tracks. And that is say, OK, fine, let's do away with all taxes. Let's go to fees. So you want to be able to drink clean water coming out of your tap? We're going to charge you a dollar for every glass of water because somebody's got to pay to clean that water. You want the air to be clean? Every time you take a breath, we're going to charge you a breath fee. Um, you want to drive on a public road? Every mile that you drive on that road is going to cost you a dollar. You're going to have to hit a toll booth every mile and pay for it. You want to, you want to have a fire department protect your, protect your house? Then, uh, you know, every month you're going to have to go down to the fire department and you're going to have to give them a small contribution. You know, like that. I mean, I'm, it's an imperfect, I'm, I'm doing this on the fly off the top of my head here. But yeah. the bottom line is taxes pay for all this stuff that we think is free. It's not, you know, and it's the stuff that holds society together. It's the glue that makes it possible. It's the soil that American business is rooted in. It is the foundation of the American middle class. That's what taxes pay for. And so if you start throwing it back at them and saying, okay, well, let's just charge fees for all these things. I think at a certain point, their brain will just go tilt and they'll get it. Does that make sense? Yep. Yep, exactly. And, and just as on the roads thing, we were looking at a piece of property up here, and it had to have a road punched into it. Um, and it was not that far, Tom. It was I can't remember the exact footage, but to do the road would have cost forty thousand dollars. And you yep. know, if people yep. understood how much all this stuff costs, you know. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, it's it's huge. <laughs> Yeah, we yeah. we went through that when we lived in Vermont and we bought some land and it was like, you know, it, it was uh, twenty some odd thousand dollars just to bring electricity in. I mean, it was like, whoa! This is on an old logging road. Teresa, thanks a lot for the call. I'm with you. Excellent. Very well said. Professor Richard Wolf is on the line with us, the economist, co-founder of Democracy at Work.info, author of numerous books. His most recent, The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. It's also available now as an e-book, Democracy at Work.info, rdwolf.com, the website with two Fs on Wolf. Prof Wolf is his Twitter handle with two Fs. Professor Wolf, welcome back. 
You know, we just saw this, the failure of this uh, union, uh, you know, effort down in Alabama with Amazon. Is there even an economic theory that animates or is used as an excuse or held up? You know, I, I know trickle down economics is kind of, you know, <laughs> discredited. But is there an economic theory that these very, very wealthy people use to justify eliminating the minimum wage, keeping the minimum wage super low, eliminating worker benefits, eliminating union rights, basically all the things that they have been so effective at doing over the last 40 years since the Reagan revolution to gut the American working class, the middle class, and even to keep you know poor people more and more desperately poor. What possible justification do they have? Is there some bizarre economic theory here that I'm, I'm unfamiliar with? No, I think what's bedeviling you, as it has for so many, is an internal contradiction of capitalism that I can explain really quickly. Marx taught this, and he was right. We're living with it still. Capitalism has the following peculiar quality. On the one hand, every capitalist understands that in order to profit, in order to prosper, and in order to grow, you have to have the ability to sell whatever product you produce. You have to have a market. There has to be demand. At the same time, every capitalist tries very hard to improve his or her profits by limiting, controlling, or reducing what are called euphemistically labor costs. What this means is every capitalist tries to lower the wages he or she has to pay by gutting the minimum wage, by all the mechanisms of automation and everything you pointed to. As if they didn't understand that if you're successful in reducing the number of workers or in lowering their wages, you are therefore undercutting their ability to buy what you sell. What you do in one way contradicts what you need in the other way. If you're going to have a market, you've got to pay them well. But if you pay them well, you won't make the profit you used to. If you don't pay them well, you won't have the market. Capitalism bounces back and forward between this contradiction all through its history. Sometimes, sometimes, like in the 1930s, the mass of workers rise up and say, Stop it. We're not going to be a ball that bounces between misery and an only temporary adequacy of our income. We demand better wage. That's when the minimum wage was passed for the first time in the 1930s. That's when we had Social Security, unemployment compensation, a federal jobs program, all of that. And the working class then got the kind of conditions capitalism had never given. And that was a middle class that was formed then and in that way. And the irony was that the capitalist class opposed it ruthlessly at every turn, but they lost, but then they, they showed genius. Having lost the effort to block a middle class from really emerging, because they don't want to pay them, they then turned around and took credit for it. For the whole rest of the 20th century, people boasted, look at capitalism in America, it created a middle class. No, the middle class was created against it, but they were clever to take credit. 
Now capitalism can't afford it anymore. We've undone the New Deal. We're back to a much harsher uh, capitalism that keeps bouncing people uh, in the way that I described. And so it's no longer possible uh, to celebrate a middle class because you've eviscerated it. And so conservatives carefully avoid going anywhere near that middle class conversation because the capitalism they celebrate and endorse has no room for that middle class as it didn't before the 1930s either. Back in the day, back in the uh, late 70s and throughout the 80s, I did international relief work on, on four continents and was in a number of countries that were desperately poor and had a small, very, very wealthy class. And I had this conversation with a number of people. It seems that in many of these countries that there was this a very, very wealthy class at the top, everybody at the bottom, and then just a very tiny middle class that was basically the professional class, the doctors and lawyers and whatnot, who were what you and I would call middle class. And I, I actually recall a, a relief worker who was also an economist, a guy who had given up economics and, and gone into relief work. And he was telling me that that's actually the norm. That that, you know, if you look at like hundreds of years of European history, the middle class was the professional class that Scrooge in A Christmas Carol was middle class. He wasn't the rich. He was just a middle class guy. He was a small businessman with one employee. And that what America did with this middle class and what Europe has done with a large middle class is largely as a result of unionism is a complete aberration from the norm of capitalism. And now we're hearing, I'm reading in The Economist, about this so-called K-shaped recovery that businesses are starting to resegment themselves, that you've got like literally dollar stores that are becoming food places for people. And then you've got other businesses that are saying, you know, like Apple, for example, we're not even going to bother with somebody who can't buy a phone for less than a thousand bucks. Are we moving toward that? Is that the norm that, that the middle class really just just becomes the professional class and becomes, you know, a three or five percent of the society rather than the what we thought, you know, the 50, 60 percent of society? I'm afraid the answer is yes, and that it's particularly painful here in the United States because corporations are more and more deciding that they don't need to pander to the mass of the American people. And as that mass becomes poorer because of automation, because of moving production out of the country, they set their sights more and more on, on where markets are still growing, which is not inside the United States, but in places like China and India. And there the middle class is also very small, but because they are enormous populations, it's the place to be if a business wants to be where the market is growing. And that means the United States is being abandoned by capitalism, just as Detroit was abandoned by the capitalism of the big auto manufacturers, or Maine was abandoned by the, the lumber and paper companies up there, and so on, when profits were greener somewhere else. But I would compensate that argument or counter that argument with another one. The genie was let out of the bottle by the 1930s, by the union spurts at that time, the CIO, as you rightly say. And a middle class was forced onto the capitalists. It's one thing in those poor societies that have been that way for centuries. 
It's a very different situation in a society that has tasted and understood what a large middle class can be and what it is. To take that away from a, of a middle that has enjoyed it is a much more contentious and difficult undertaking. And it, to me, it is not at all clear that American capitalism will be able to pull that off. That's the stuff of revolution, isn't it? That's right, exactly. Yeah. Professor Richard Wolf, The Economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info, his newest book, The Sickness is the System, also available as an ebook, rdwolf.com at democracyatwork.info. Prof Wolf on Twitter. Thank you, Professor Wolf. Thank you, Tom. Glad to talk with you. This Thank you. is the Tom Hartman Program. Susan in Phoenix, Arizona. Hey, Susan, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Yes, what I wanted to mention as far as the Green Party, it, it's not just a third party that gets in the way of the Democrats. Environmentalists have said that the Green Party in the United States has never done anything for the environment. So it's kind of like a sham. And on well, top of that, I don't think that's often- altogether true. The early Green Party, the Green Party up until about 20 years ago, actually did a lot. The, the Green Party got over 300 communities in America to pass instant runoff voting. The Green Party uh, advocated for a whole bunch of good environmental legislation. What happened was, um, starting about 20 years ago, was that the you know Republican oligarchs started funding the Green Party as a way of taking votes away from the Democratic Party. And the Green Party became a political football. And, and uh, you know, I would say particularly with the 2016 election, um, you know, basically lost their soul. Yes, they, they pretty much that now the candidates are often funded by the Republican Party. Yeah, But also I, I wanted to mention, I don't think a lot of people realize the Libertarian Party is actually giving all the control to the corporations. Because they want mm-hmm. small government, they're privatizing everything, which is handing over control to corporations. So, I mean, it's, uh, some of them don't even see that, as I've talked to some of them. So, there's, a, there's, a, there's a group called uh, FEE, F-E-E. It's the Foundation for Economic Education, as I recall. Um, I may be wrong on the acronym, but that's my recollection. It's been a few years. Um, uh, Nancy McLean writes about this in, in uh, Democracy and Chains. Uh, Jane Mayers writes about it in Dark Money. Uh, I write about it in my book, Screwed, and in my book, uh, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy. And that organization in the 1950s wanted to have, they wanted to deregulate the real estate industry. This was, keep in mind, this is a real estate lobbying group that worked on behalf of developers. And they didn't like the fact that all these rules were coming in about how you had to have septic lines and you had to have, you know, uh, sidewalks and you had to, you know, you had to build houses in particular ways. They wanted to deregulate the housing industry, but they wanted to have a cover for it. They didn't want to come in and say, hey, it's us, the lobbying group. And so they invented the Libertarian Party. It literally was invented by a lobbying group on behalf of the, of the real estate industry to fight for deregulation. And over the years, what has happened is that that Libertarian Party that was created by the fee in the 19, in 1954, as I recall, um, has become now a political party which still holds that same principle. Government can do no right. There should be no regulation. There should be no taxation. The only function of government should be uh, military, you know, the courts, uh, the police and the, and the army. That's it. And uh, they've done an enormous amount of damage, Susan, just an enormous amount of damage yeah, well, to this country. There's never been, I think you might have said this, 
There was never a government. There's no successful government on Earth that is libertarian. That's correct. There has never yeah. been a country operating on libertarian principles. We have had examples of successful communism, not on a countrywide scale, but kibbutzes in Israel and small religious communities are, are typically communist. So in a small community, you can actually demonstrate that communism works. Um, I don't think it works in a large environment, in a large country. But nowhere can you find at any scale uh, a situation where libertarian works, uh, libertarianism works. So spot on. Susan, thank you very much for the call. That was brilliant. Thank you. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Bill in Glen Allen, Illinois. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hey, Tom, how are you? I am a retired third-generation union electrician out of the Chicagoland area. Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what your, your guest had to say about the middle class. The middle class okay. is, is dwindling. It's going away. And I believe that was Reagan's plan all along. Oh, Union absolutely. membership has gone from 50 to 60 percent down to about 17 percent today. Well, it depends on where you are. The national average was right around 34 percent when Reagan came into office. And in the private workforce, it's now at 6 percent. Overall, I think it's between 11 and 13 percent. But that, you know, that includes a lot of government employees. But back to you, Bill. Yeah. I mean, it might, it might be much higher in Chicago because Chicago has always been a, you know, Chicago land, that area anyway, has always been a heavy union, union uh, place. And thank God for that. Uh, yeah. Growing up, we had, just on our block, we had tin knockers, we had carpenters, we had tool and die makers. You know, everybody was able to get a new car every four or five years. Same here. People were able to take vacations every year. That's yep. all gone. Same here. Yep. You know, the and industrial revolution is long gone. Well, the industrial revolution is still going, out. but the 
but the middle class is long gone because of changes that Reagan made in the tax policy. I mean, you know, yeah, the industry has changed what they're making. I mean, right now there's this huge shortage of chips that's actually slowing down the production of cars. Why is that? Well, because when Reagan, re, you know, revived the, the general agreement on tariffs and trade, which led to the World Trade Organization, and when Reagan and, and Bush negotiated NAFTA and then Bill Clinton signed it, um, that meant that most of our chip manufacturing went to China. And China is not sure those chips with us right now. So we can't, you know, we're, GM is having to slow down their assembly lines because they can't build cars. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, it's just crazy what has been done to us in the name of, of gutting the middle class. And there was actually, Bill, there was actually a rationale for this. And, uh, you know, I've talked about this before, but I, I, it deserves repeating because, you know, people typically tune in for 15, 20 minutes when they're in the car, they don't hear the whole show. So I'll just do it very, very quickly. Back in 1951, there was this guy, Russell Kirk. He published a book called The Conservative Mind. It became the Bible of the conservative movement. It, 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 it was the thing that lit Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley on fire. And in that book, Russell Kirk predicted that if at, at, that, was, at that point in time, in 1951, the American middle class was growing faster than any middle class had ever grown in the history of the world, and they were growing faster than the rich people were growing in terms of wealth and income. And Russell Kirk said, if this continues, what you're going to see is three things. You are going to see, you are going to see young people lose all respect for their parents and start violating social norms. You are going to see women lose all respect for their husbands and they will no longer need to rely on their husbands for their, for their uh, income and their lifestyle. And you are going to see minorities starting to demand equality in the workplace. And this will lead to social chaos. And everybody laughed at him, right? I mean, you know, Goldwater took him seriously. Buckley took him seriously. But generally speaking, you know, uh, uh, Dwight Eisenhower writing about Russell Kirk or at least about people like him, said their numbers are small and they are stupid. That was in 1954 in a letter to his brother Edgar. But then came the 60s. And in 61, the birth control was legalized. By 64, you had a women's movement and, you know, bra burning had become a thing. By 66, you had the, the Vietnam War and young people were burning draft cards became a thing. You had the civil rights movement that was growing throughout the 60s, particularly, uh, you know, with the, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. And, and cities were burning in response, in every single case, in response to police violence. And at that point, Republicans looked back at Russell Kirk's book and said, holy crap, this guy was right. You know, uh, those, those three areas that he predicted are absolutely right. And so what we've got to do is we've got to gut the middle class. We've got to make it expensive to go to college so these students will no longer protest at college. They'll be too afraid of losing their education. We've got to cut the income of the middle class so that, so that these folks will not feel like they can stand up to their employers and go on strike and things like that. And, and we've got to dial back on women's rights. And they have been doing this full, and taking out unions was a big part of it. So, you know, they yeah, thought they absolutely. were doing something good, that they were, they were gonna return stability to America. They were gonna take us back to Beaver Cleaver land. It didn't quite work out that way, Bill. I'll give you the last word. No, they've moved all the manufacturing to Honduras and Vietnam and everything else. I mean, think about it. I'm a, I am a, a son of the greatest generation. If we had to go into war production today, where would we be? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I am too. We would be in a very, very tough place. We can't build a cruise missile right now without Chinese parts. That tells you the whole thing. Bill, thank you. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. 
Back with more of your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program. How do we rebuild the middle class? I say tax the rich. Mark in Cosa Mesa, California. Hey, Mark, thanks for listening to the Tom Hartman app. What's up? Hi, Tom. Nice to talk to you always. I thought about this right after the one six, but I, I didn't get on the phone with you about it. But I always think about when Trump does something, he always has two things. What's in it for him? And then in this case with one six, he didn't come up with this. He, it's the worst crime in the history of the United States, along with his incompetence as uh, president and the lack of concern for the, the coronavirus. So those are the he should be charged for both. He doesn't look concerned at all. It's like, what's in it for him? It's like, he got money for it, but he also, yeah. he's protected. So he's guaranteed protection. So he goes on and on. Everything he does is what's in it for him. His presidential donations. And then also you were talking about the grifting and, you know, taking his donation money and the family taking the money. It's like, he's a expert on laundering money and hiding money overseas so he he's doing it all and if you know it's like his presidential campaign 2024 he knows he's not going to be president but he just cares about that that hearing that money go from people's accounts into his account and that that's, yep. that's what he's about everything he does that's what he's about Oh, and he told us this, you know, back during the primary, he said, I'll be the first person ever to make money running for president. Uh, he, I mean, he bragged about it. And then, you yeah. know, apparently him and his family embezzled hundreds of millions or at least millions of dollars out of the inaugural committee. And then $600 million is missing from his reelection committee. And, and nobody's quite sure where it went or who it went to. You've got now his son and his son's girlfriend, I guess, uh, is what you would call Kimberly Guilford. They just bought a couple of $10 million mansions down in Florida. The Trump family seems to be centering as many of their assets as they can in real estate in Florida. Ivanka just bought a, you know, a big chunk of land, multi-million dollar piece of land on an island down there. I think the reason why is because the Florida bankruptcy laws in most states, if you declare a bankruptcy, you lose your home as well. They can take your home as one of your assets. In Florida, they can't take your principal residence. So Trump has declared Mar-a-Lago, which is his, one of his most valuable properties, as his principal residence. His kids are all establishing multi-million dollar principal residences down there. So if they go down, if they get you know convicted of these crimes, if they you know if they're looking at you know massive bankruptcy and loss of assets and things, they'll still have 10, 20, 30 million dollar cushions. And you know 10, 20, 30 million dollars if you live modestly, you can you can have a pretty good life for the rest of your life, even if you're in your 30s or 40s. So, you know, I, I think they're getting ready. I think they're getting ready for the grift to end. But I agree with you, Mark. This, this entire thing has been a long con. It's been one giant grift. This is what grifters do. Donald Trump is a grifter, a professional grifter. And, you know, it's amazing he's been able to pull it off as long as he has. I think a lot of Americans are starting to see through it now, but phew, the damage he did, it's incredible. Gloria in Amherst, Ohio. Gloria, it says here you disagree with me, so you go to the front of the line. What do you disagree with me about? Pretty much everything you say. I mean, I'm I'm an independent, so I vote well, both pick ways. Pick one. <laughs> um, pick one why? thing. Why would I pick one when I well, believe so in... that we can discuss it? No, I just okay, I wanted to Gloria. know: Do you believe in personal responsibility? Because it doesn't seem like you do. 
I mean, you seem to think that everything should be free, so nobody should have to work. I mean, if you give away free college, what's the incentive to do well? You have to have some type of incentive to do well. If I give Gloria, you every other developed country in the world does free college. In Denmark, they pay you $400 a month to go to college. The reason why we are slipping behind the rest of the world in patents, the reason why we're slipping behind the rest of the world in education is because it costs a fortune to get a college education. This is our intellectual infrastructure. This is our future that you're talking about. And, you know, you and the Republicans want to make sure that somebody can make a buck off education. I would rather have the nation be well educated. You know, Thomas Jefferson made the point that if you think that you can have a poorly educated populace and a functioning democracy, you are believing in something that never existed and never will. Okay, so let's say public schools are free. How well are they They doing? They're not doing well. Well, they were doing fine until Ronald Reagan started taking a meat axe to them and put Bill Bennett in charge. Bill Bennett, the guy. Aren't they free? Well, no. I mean, you know, we we pay property taxes for them, which is a pretty regressive way of doing it. But I I don't understand your point. Somebody has to pay for something. Not everything can be free. Well, obviously, everybody pays for everything, Gloria. These rather pathetic efforts to slice and dice people's language. The fact of the matter is that we have to have an educated populace, and we pay for that with our tax dollars. Gloria, you know, nice try. Call back again. Pick another topic. We can talk about it. But yeah, I believe that college should be free. And we should be paying for it with our taxes. That's why we have a civil society. I get it. You don't believe in a civil society. I do. Anyhow, Linda in Dallas, Texas. Hey, Linda, what's on your mind today? The lady that called in and disagreed with you on everything that you have to say. Let me, I want to just comment on the free education. I went to school in 1973 under the Basic Education Opportunity Grant that was offered by Jimmy Carter. I majored in business administration. I have been out working since then, had jobs in large corporations, still working and contributing so much to IRS for taxes. And what they don't understand is when you help somebody up, they can give back to society. And I had friends that didn't go to college, and they were like, well, I didn't know anything about the Basic Education Opportunity Grant. I don't know how some people found out and some didn't. But it helps. It really does help. Oh, not only that, Linda, we have done the experiment. We actually did this here in the United States. People say, well, you know, maybe Denmark can do that, but it won't work in the United States. We actually did that. It was called the GI Bill. My dad went to college on the GI Bill. My wife's father went to, in fact, he got his, uh, his law degree, became the assistant attorney general for the state of Michigan on the GI Bill. And what we learned, because we knew exactly how much money we spent sending those mostly young men after World War II to college, we knew exactly how much we spent, and we also knew exactly how much they paid in taxes over the course of their lifetimes because, hey, the government compiles those statistics. And what we learned was that for every dollar, every tax dollar, now I realize there, you know, a lot of these callers are just misguided. I'm assuming the woman who called just doesn't actually, you know, bother to do her research or know the facts. But in many cases, they're, they're basically just shills for billionaires who 
who pay them to call shows and things like this. And the billionaires don't want their taxes going up. But, but basically what we learned was that for every $1 we spent educating that World War II generation through the GI Bill, we received, as a country, the United States of America received an additional $7 in tax revenue that those people would not have paid if they had a lower income as a result of not having had that college education. So we got a 700% return on our investment in educating our young people. And how these people who call themselves conservatives could turn that down and say, nah, we'd rather America just kind of look like Mississippi. You know, with it's hard to get an education and if you don't have any money, just forget about going to college and, you know, maybe you can fix cars for the rest of your life or something like that. It's pathetic, really. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's tragic, in fact, that they are so poorly informed or that they have been listening to, you know, right-wing hate radio or wherever they're getting their information, you know, assuming that, you know, that she wasn't just a shill for a billionaire who doesn't want their taxes to pay for somebody's education. It's real unfortunate. But we have done that experiment here in the United States. Thomas Jefferson, and I realize he's kind of out of fashion right now because he was a slaveholder and that's a terrible thing and would absolutely should be condemned. But he, on his tombstone, had three things. Author of the Declaration of Independence. I forget what the second one was. And then the third one was founder of the University of Virginia. The University of Virginia was the first free college in the United States. He wanted it to be an absolutely free college. Ronald Reagan ended free college in California. And it hurt California quite badly. That free college education made California one of the incubators of, of new products and new, new product development, particularly the computer revolution. As a consequence of that, I mean, how would you not want to invest in your country unless you just basically hate your country? I don't don't get it, Linda. I just don't get it. And the thing about it, there are a lot of educational programs now uh, supported by the government, like the two-year certificate or associate degree. And Mm -hmm. kids won't take advantage of it. It just boils my blood to see that they're not taking advantage of these opportunities that's already available to them. Yeah. Well, in many cases, they just don't know. And that's unfortunate. And that's why I think that we really need to have you know, obviously, if somebody wants to go to Harvard, you know, if they want to go to a private, fancy, expensive college, let them pay for it. But if they want to get an education and they don't have the resources to do that, I don't think that we want young people going into debt so that the, you know, the next 10, 20 years of their lives, they can't afford to get married. They can't afford to start a family. They can't afford to be an entrepreneur and start their own business because they're just desperately in debt. That is not good for our country. It's not good for our individuals. So I think that public colleges and universities and public two-year colleges and trade schools, all of them should be free to the individual. I realize there is a cost to society, but again, that cost is not actually a cost. It's an investment. As we found with the GI Bill, it returns $7 for every dollar invested. Linda, I got to move along, but thank you for the call. It's great to hear from you. Kyle in Los Angeles. Hey, Kyle. Thanks for listening to KPFK. What's on your mind? Hey, Tom. Happy Earth Day. And, uh, yeah, my call is uh, regarding an earlier comment about the two-party system just being basically what we're stuck with. And I wanted your opinion on ranked choice voting and proportional representation as a way out of that. I'm uh, not not necessarily a huge supporter of the Green Party for some of the reasons you mentioned earlier. Kind of interested in the People's Party. And I think the only way that any third parties are really going to have a chance is with ranked choice voting and 
proportional representation where you have maybe combined districts have you know more people that are elected could be two democrats two you know and a republican in the district or you know maybe a, a representative of three different parties imagine that so just kind of wanted to hear your thoughts on this I completely agree with you, Kyle, and that's why I congratulate the Green Party for getting ranked choice voting in over 300 communities in America. I think San Francisco is the largest. And, you know, ranked choice voting allows for multiple political parties, which is why both Republicans and Democrats hate it, you know, the institutional parties, because it reduces their power. But it is a good thing, in my opinion, for democracy. Now, I I realize there are some people who are looking, for example, at the Israeli democracy right now and going, Really? You know, because that's a parliamentary system. You know, whichever party gets 10% of the vote gets 10% of the representation kind of thing. But I still, I I continue to think it's a good thing. And we're not going to do, at least at the federal level, proportional representation because it would require a substantial alteration of the Constitution. You know, we can get around, for example, the Electoral College by, you know, having this, uh, this, this compact of states. Uh, But to the best of my knowledge, unless I'm missing something, you can't get around our first-past-the-post winner-take-all elections, which produce our two-party system. John Stuart Mill essentially invented, or certainly popularized, ranked-choice voting with his book On Liberty in, uh, I think it was 1846. And that was long after our Constitution was written. So we're kind of stuck with that. But ranked-choice voting is absolutely, in my opinion, the way to go, or instant runoff voting it's sometimes referred to as and that is, for people who don't know what we're talking about here, Kyle, that would be, um, you know, like in the 2000 election. Um, uh, yeah, we lived in Vermont, so I figured, you know, I, I didn't have to vote for Al Gore because I knew Vermont was going to go for Al Gore. So I voted for Ralph Nader. Well, had we had ranked choice voting, I would have voted for Ralph Nader as my first choice and Al Gore as my second choice. And, my, and when Ralph Nader didn't hit the 15 percent threshold or whatever, it's established by the law then my second vote would have become my first vote and my vote would have become a vote for Al Gore. And that's, in my opinion, what we need. Does that make sense, Kyle? Absolutely. And who knows, maybe even ranked choice, you know, as, as it would maybe open the door for more parties coming in, maybe eventually they'd be able to get a change in the Constitution to make, uh, you know, the more representational, proportional, rather, uh, representation happen. Who knows? But, yeah, yeah. appreciate no, that. No, I'm, I'm with you. Other- and you know, you know the place where we really need proportional representation is the Senate. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we need proportional representation in the Senate. You can argue that we have something that resembles proportional representation in the House in as much as each member represents, you know, what, 600,000 plus, uh, you know, citizens. But no, the Senate is a mess. Kyle, thank you for the call. Excellent points all. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 